I'm Angel Donovan, and this is the Dating Skills Podcast. This is a 14-year ongoing mission to discover the truth about what works in dating, sex, and relationships, to become a better man. Join me as I leave no stone unturned, chase down every expert, role model, and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information so that you can take it in and change your life for the better, step-by-step, episode-by-episode. Angel Donovan here with another episode of Dating Skills Podcast. Getting ready for Xmas here. It's a little bit different for me because I'm down in Mexico and hitting the beach every morning. But I hope you guys, wherever you are, it's not too cold. And if it is cold, I hope you're just enjoying the season because it's always the best time of year. Everyone's happy. You know, there's a lot going on. So I hope you're enjoying it. There's a fair amount of attraction, dating, and relationships research today. You see a lot of it in the papers, you know, the general press, where they bring out these studies. A lot of them for us actually aren't that interesting. I mean, I have issues with a lot of the studies, the way they're done. They're often done on surveys, and people are biased in what they respond to surveys, particularly around sexuality, dating, and so on. I'd like to see more hard data in these studies where they're actually looking at behaviors and and how things are influenced instead of looking at what people say they do, which isn't always what they do. It's also unusual that an actual dating method or system, so the kind of things we look at here, the advice, the techniques, these approaches to dating, sex, and relationships, We don't often see that that's evaluated scientifically. In fact, it's only been done once so far. So when I found out about the study that did that, it's a scientific review, I wanted to check it out. It was published in the Evolutionary Psychology Journal in 2012, and it was called The Dating Mind, Evolutionary Psychology and the Emerging Science of Human Courtship. What was interesting for me was that the paper's conclusion was this. We argue that when properly and ethically understood the dating and seduction industry, so that's like the pickup artist stuff as well, despite its provocative label and origins outside of academia, is founded on solid empirical research as well as firsthand courtship and relationship experience. So they're saying that there is some support for, you know, some of the techniques and the methods in empirical scientific research, things that are accepted scientifically today, so in the academic world, which is great because that means some of the stuff we learn about here is, you know, scientifically proven to work. So in our ongoing search for the ultimate truth on how to improve your dating skills, I had to get the researcher on to talk about this paper. And this is the man we have today. His name is Nathan Esch. And he's currently at the Department of Experimental Psychology in the University of Oxford in England. For those guys outside of England, basically Oxford is the Harvard of England. So it's at the top of the ranks of academia in the UK. He is currently a PhD candidate in social and evolutionary neuroscience. And he's going to probably graduate in the next six months. So he'll become a doctor, you know, PhD right then. He's also been reading and learning about dating and relationships for about seven years. He first found the mystery method and Neil Strauss, and he's kind of worked around that angle. So as you'll see, that's something we're going to be talking about today. 
Now, there's a lot of ground that we cover and a lot of references to some science, and we, we talk around a lot. So, you know, there's a lot of show notes today. Um, it's pretty full. There's, there's tons of links there for you to learn more about everything we're talking about. And, of course, we have the full transcript, as usual, of the interview. You can get all of that at datingskillsreview.com slash DSP48. That's DSP48. Now, let's get to this interview and find out what science says about some of the things that are used within the seduction community and that have come out of the seduction community. Nathan, it's fantastic to have you on the show today. How are you doing? Hey, I'm great. Great. Thanks for inviting me. Great. Well, it's great to have another academic background guy. We love the rigor that you guys bring to these podcasts. So, you know, welcome. And uh, feel free to push back on anything I say today if it doesn't sound too rigorous and it sounds too wishy-washy to your academic kind of background. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> so what is your background? What, what exactly do you do and how did you get there? Well, right now I'm completing a PhD in experimental psychology uh, at Oxford. My supervisor is a fairly well-known evolutionary psychologist and Right now, in the final year of my PhD, uh, working on the evolution of language is one area of evolutionary psychology that hasn't really been explored as well as, as other areas have, and so that's why I've chosen to, to look at that for my thesis. Great. So why dating? Why the seduction community? Where did this paper come from that you put out? Uh, I guess it was about a year and a half ago now. Um, mm. A friend and colleague of mine asked me if I wanted to help him write this paper, basically uh, in response to um, a journal that was calling for applied you know, approaches to evolutionary psychology. We'd known each other for a while, and we both had known that we had had some learning from the community, both in practice and from reading various materials. We just felt at the time that it was an area that had not been taken seriously by a lot of academics, mm. and we wanted to see whether or not any of these claims and principles could be backed up by legitimate scientific research. You know, I mean, that's, that's great, because as you were saying to me before, you've been reading this stuff and playing around with it yourself since 2007. So you kind yeah. of got this real-world experiences looking at it and you finding it useful, I guess versus the kind of academic point of view where, you know, is it proven, is it not proven? So you're kind of taking those two perspectives and merging them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, when I first heard about the community, you know, six or seven years ago, I was naturally mm. very skeptical about it. Mm. I didn't know what it was all about. But the questions they were asking, I thought were very interesting. And I mm. got very curious about it. And so I started reading a lot of material and, you know, trying out various claims that, uh, that was made by the community. And having surprisingly certain degrees of success with that. Mm. Uh, an interesting journey, I guess you'd say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great. Let's talk a bit about process for publishing. What, what has to happen? What, what I want people to understand who are listening is in this academic process of publishing in a journal, what kind of hoops do you have to jump through to make sure that the paper's not just wishy-washy stuff and it's got some academic rigor and some science behind it? What kind of controls are in place to make sure that, you know, it, it's quality and it's based on a hard process, which tries to look at facts only? Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, the way the scientific process works within any area of science is through peer review. And so that's that natural kind of checks and balances it's done whenever you want to try to publish anything. And so with this particular paper, there were four academics based both in the UK and in the United States who read over this paper. And um, when we first submitted it, there were a lot of corrections, and it wasn't immediately uh, accepted by the mm. uh, 
by the editors. And so we had to go back and rearrange some things and change, you know, change our argument a little bit. We wanted to try to stay as pure as our original vision as we could. And mm. I felt like we did that successfully, but there were some comments and additions that they had in mind and we um, went ahead and made those changes. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but to answer your question, you know, it's, um, it, it is a rigorous process no matter where you're publishing and they don't just, you know, elect put anything you want in, in, into academic journals. Otherwise, you know, it's, it would be catastrophic for science, I think, if, you know, people could publish whatever they wanted to. Um, <laughs> so. Right, right. Well, when I read through it, it's got a lot of citations and references to previous studies and previous works, which seem to be, you know, by the way you present them, that it's commonly agreed upon now that you know, the, the research and, and the studies that were done by these people at that time are good science and it's become kind of part of the science architecture and the things that academics rely on today going forward. So to me, it seemed like your paper, basically, you looked through all of the research around the subject and, you know, in different areas of science and you decided what was supported by existing research and studies and what wasn't. Is that a good take on how you weren't about it? That's correct, yeah. So I think a lot of the studies, first of all, it was a review paper, and so mm. the objective was to review all of the current literature that's been in the field now for decades and decades. Of course, some of those papers were newer than others, but the point is that you know we were looking for claims that could be substantiated by legitimate psychological research, and some of the claims couldn't be substantiated, and some of them could. And so that's really what we were looking at is kind of the body of of psychological and neuroscientific research that's been done and asking the question whether or not they can, they substantiate any of the claims made by the community at all, or Mm. if it's just a bunch of bunk that they've been proselytizing for the past 10 years or so. Mm -hmm. Well, so a little bit later, I'd like to get into what, you know, you ended up kind of rejecting in the paper and also in the pre review process, they made you change some stuff. But we'll come back to that later to, to keep this, you know, a bit, a bit structured. Uh, but what I wanted to talk about a bit now is like once it was published, has there been any response from the scientific community? And was it I expected or unexpected? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I've, I would say I've probably gotten about 50-50 in terms of just positive and negative feedback from people. But I will say that just in terms of the academic community, most of the feedback from them has been overwhelmingly positive, Great. at least thus far. Mm. Interestingly, most of the negative feedback I've found has come from lay people who I think maybe just didn't really understand what the community is, or maybe they've heard secondhand reports through the media, or they've gotten misinformation from somewhere. And so I think most of the negative criticism has come from people who just didn't really understand first of all, what the community is, and second of all, what we were trying to argue in our paper. Uh, I guess this is journalists and and people like that, or? Not not journalists so much. So I actually gave a talk London last year um, Mm. to a speed dating seminar because they asked me to come and talk about my research, and Mm. um, it was an unpaid open invitation, and pretty much within five to ten minutes of my my talk, um, I got a lot of giggles and snickers from the audience, and then Mm. once I... And I finished my talk, you know, the, the assault just kind of started from every, from every corner, left and right, people accusing me of being a misogynist. And oh, really? So was this both men and women? This is, it, sounds, um, it sounds like a bit of groupthink going on there. It was definitely groupthink, yeah. Mm. I felt like it was a little bit unfair because I wasn't there to promote myself as a pickup artist. I was there mm. promoting myself as an academic who was looking at 
debating Christian Hickapard's literature and trying to analyze whether or not their claims had any substance to them. And so mm. I felt like it was a little bit unfair because I wasn't promoting those ideas. Mm. At least I didn't feel like I was. I was mostly trying to look at it from a, a skeptical scientific right. inquiry. In some ways, I don't really blame them because I think there's been a lot of negative media. Yeah, yeah. Look, in every subject in the world, there's going to be haters. That's, that's my experience. I've run a few businesses in my life and I've done, I've done a whole bunch of things. And no matter how like charitable or whatever it is, there's always going to be someone somewhere hating on it. I think it's just kind of the nature of the world. There's always going to be people who love it and there's always going to be people that hate it. And as long as you've got you know, 80% who are loving it, you're probably going in the right direction. So anyway, let's get more to the academic community. That's because that's really the more interesting part here is like what kind of positive response did you get from them that you were saying? And if there are any kind of examples of negative, that would be interesting too. Yeah, I don't really have too many negative critiques that I've gotten from academics. So I gave a similar such talk uh, up at UCL around the same time last year and about, I don't know, 20, 30 people in the audience. And the reception I got was really overwhelmingly positive. And it was really, I mean, I think people were curious and interested about it. There are a few questions that maybe kind of question the ethics of particular dating coaches and so on, but mm. um, I tried to describe my own kind of take on that, that there's perhaps a minority within the community that, that do behave unethically, but yep. just as there are in any industry, whether you're talking about mm, uh, exactly. corporate CEOs or um, doctors or lawyers, I mean, you're always going to have a small minority mm. of kind of a shady element that are doing things maybe they shouldn't be doing. I think in my own experience, knowing, you know, dating coaches and, you know, being around these people for the past six or seven years, you know, I, I think they're basically decent guys. I mean, I, I don't think they're out to manipulate or hurt anyone. Mm. And I think they just want to improve their experiences with the opposite sex, like, you know, any normal person would. I think maybe the difference between them and your average person is that they just put a lot more motivation and enthusiasm into mastering that area of, li- of their life. In my mind, I don't think there's anything really wrong with that. All right, great. So let's get into the paper now, uh, into some of the details and kind of what you found. We can get you know a bit of uh, education from this and understand it better. So you chose to look at the mystery method by Eric von Markovic. Also, you, you cited rules of the game by Neil Strauss, which is pretty similar. But you can tell me, like, why, why did you choose to look at these areas in particular? And also the model which you, you bring out in the paper, which is the model of attraction, comfort and trust and seduction, kind of a free stage model. Why did you choose to focus on that? Well, I think there were a couple of reasons. I think probably one of the reasons was that from what we could tell when we were writing this paper is that Mystery and the people that have studied under him seem to have exerted the most influence in the community um, as a whole. Granted, there are all these different schools of thought and methods and strategies that men you know, promote for, for meeting and dating women. But as far as we could tell, we, we seem to be kind of the nearly universal concepts that perhaps not everyone agreed with, but you know, the majority of people at least took some you know, insights and information from that. So that was one reason. And I think the other reason is that from a scientific perspective, when we looked at the mystery method, it seemed to us like a system. I mean, we didn't know at the time whether or not it was science when we were writing this paper, but it seemed to us they at least had the flavor of science. You know, it was a very kind of systematic, you know, well-constructed system, which is kind of what scientists are looking for when they're constructing 
experience and trying to understand the world. It's very detailed. Yeah, we felt like that was the best place to start. Most of the tips and strategies, were, we, we felt like were very specific and mm. were meant scientific investigation you know in, in contrast to some dating coaches that just advocate be confident or be smooth or you know wear the right clothes which are kind of untestable hypotheses really mm. uh, when you get, get right down to it we felt like at least the mystery method had at least concepts that you could at least in principle look at and see if they had any credibility to them right so, right just for, from an analytic point of view then it was specific enough that you could I would say yes or no. You could look at it and you could prove it or disprove it or, or exactly. say, yeah. So which, which areas of science did you look at for this review? What did you look at and feel that was relevant to be supporting this kind of activity or, or these kind of ideas about how human behavior works? Well, Igor and myself are uh, evolutionary psychologists, yep. my co-author. We felt like that was really the best place to start. First of all, because courtship and dating is you know very much a subject that evolutionary psychologists look at from all different aspects. Mm. So we felt like that was really the place to start. But um, as we got further into the literature, we noticed that there were a lot of concepts that didn't always fall under the rubric of evolutionary psychology. So things from like social psychology and neuroscience and mm. neurobiology it felt like we needed to talk about those areas also if we wanted to have a, a complete picture of you know, what you know, the community was actually advocating. And so we... Mm. We try not to limit ourselves too much in that, but kind of start from evolutionary psychology's foundation. Okay, great. So it went in areas of social psychology. Are there any other specific areas you brought up? Well, no, I think we mostly focused on social psychology, neurobiology, mm. evolutionary psychology, just because I think, you know, courtship and meeting people in relationships is very much, you know, an area of social psychology. I mean, mm. it's something social psychologists have been studying for decades. Mm. So just, just for... People to understand is so evolutionary psychology is the, the principle is basically to study how brain is evolved and our behavior is affected by man. You can explain this pro much better than me. That the way the brain is formed like basically determines how how we behave today. Is that evolutionary psychology? I just want a very brief summary of like each of those, like in a neuroscience and a social psychology. What's the different things that they're looking at? Yeah, so evolutionary psychology, I think, to me, is really just a study of human nature. So it's trying okay. to understand like how certain traits and um, ways of thinking have evolved in our species and how that in our evolutionary environment may have led to you know, increased survival and reproduction. Right. So it really looks to try, it tries to look at universal aspects of human nature mm. and explain those in terms of evolutionary biology. Mm. So things like language or vision or mating behavior or any of these things that tend to be universal among all, all humans, mm. it asks the question, why are those things there and how might they uh, aided our perpetuation as a species. Yep. And then social psychology, I think, is really just study of how an individual human relates to his social environment. Mm. So it's like status, for example, or relationships, or how you interact with your family and friends versus how you interact with your boss. So that, that sounds like it's a lot more focused on studying how things happen today. You know, it's a lot more look, looking at maybe a study of 20 people and how they, they're reacting in, to each other and so on. And in under certain situations, would that be correct? That's right. right. Yeah, I think social psychology, at least the way it's framed today's academic climate, it's not really framed in terms of evolutionary considerations, which yep. is fine. You know, it's the way it is. Mm. Just looking yeah. at how it is today. Just just what, what, right. what they see. What they see. So they don't really, at least in most cases, they don't make reference to the past as much as they right. evolutionary psychologists do. Cool. That's very clear. And neurobiology, neuroscience, is neuroscience the same thing? 
Well, yeah, I think neuroscience is such a broad field. Um, I think it really taps into a lot of different areas mm-hmm. and tried to, I think, selectively analyze aspects of neurobiology that we felt like either supported or um, didn't support uh, the various you know, claims made by um, dating coaches. So as we got into, into the paper, we talked about you know, aspects of building comfort and, and trust with a person, for example, how those are... Uh, influenced by endorphins and various other neurochemicals. So, so the neurobiology goes into hormones, analysis of hormones as well. Basically, how the brain's influenced by hormones or influencing hormones. Is that? That's right. I mean, it's all based on physiology. So, mm. it's, it's more like physical structure versus the other ones are looking at behavior more. Exactly. Yeah, it's neuroanatomy. It's physical structure. It's mm. hormones and um, peptides that are in the brain and throughout the body. A lot more detailed. Yeah, it's detailed and it's much more, in my opinion, an aspect of biology. So mm-hmm. it's looking at you know, how these things actually work on approximate level, close to kind of an ultimate level, which is what evolutionary psychologists look at. So it's looking at kind of the how mechanisms as opposed to the why mechanisms. Great. Well, like, let's look at some of the things you came up with in this paper that you thought were interesting and that were supported. So one of the theories that you brought up, which sounded pretty interesting, was parental investment, which is apparently something that's uh, pretty well respected now? That's right. So in the early 1970s, a guy named Robert Trivers came up with this, what I think is a brilliant theory about how sexes devote differential amounts of investment in their offspring based on basically the size of the gametes. So the way biologists define male and female is that females have large sexual sex cells and males have tiny sex cells. And so what that means for investment is that, you know, females will be much more inclined to devote lots of resources and energy into offspring compared to males mm. because they they have no other choice in a sense. You know, they have they have to devote all this time to gestation and then, you know, once the offspring are born, you know, at the bare minimum, especially in humans, you know, two to three years of breastfeeding and weaning their offspring and even once their toddler is running around, they can't really take care of themselves like other animals do. So this is what's known as altriciality. And so say when a baby deer is born, for example, it kind of out of the womb, it's scampering around all by itself, mm. you know, and then it's born. And for all intents and purposes, it can pretty much take care of itself. You know, mm. it might need a little bit of protection for its mother from predators and that sort of thing, but it can find its own food, it can find water if it needs to, it can run away to safety if it needs to do that. Mm -hmm. But in contrast, human children are completely and utterly helpless. If they don't have mom around to carry them and feed them and, you know, do all the things that need to be done for for an infant, then, you know, they're going to be done for. And this is something that's kind of specific to human children and something that we have an extended kind of childhood, which makes us unique uh, Mm -hmm. compared to other animals. I think the theory of parental investment, in my mind, is especially interesting when you look uh, at humans because it's it's kind of like an extreme case of when you know you have mothers that are really devoted, then fathers that you know you know kind of not quite so sure. How did you link that to the dating and seduction world? I, I think that was kind of the first theory from biology and evolutionary psychology that we felt like we could use that as a framework for explaining what's going on between men and women, mm-hmm. and you know maybe a lot of a lot of guys kind of intuitively understand that, at least on some level, but maybe they've never been presented with a theory proper and the data accumulated over the past few decades in, in reference to this theory. And it's now been shown in 
a whole host of species from birds to fish to um, insects. I mean, you name it, you know, whenever you have this difference between male and females, it, it, it tends to be there. And just as an example, there's a phallothrope, which is a, a bird kind of that uh, kind of hangs out in bogs and saltish ponds and that sort of thing. And they found that just in this particular species, uh, the sexual dimorphism and contributing to parenting are actually reversed in this species. So, mm. you know, you have definitive male and female categories. It's the females that are larger and more brightly colored than the males. The males or the females pursue and fight over the males and then defend them from other females until the male begins, you know, incubating the eggs. And so it seems like those roles have been reversed in this particular species. Uh, it's called a phallothrope. So that's part of the evidence that seems to support this theory. I mean, so far there hasn't been a single case that biologists have scratched their heads and said, I don't, that doesn't seem to fit with Every single case so far seems to, to match up with this idea. Which right. is- so the, in the mystery method, one of the underpinnings right at the beginning that mystery based it on is that women are the ones who are deciding. They're the ones who are choosing whether they're interested in the guy or not. And so you're linking it to this parental investment theory. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it seems to be the case both anecdotally and from a scientific perspective, that females just have a lot more to lose. Right. You know, males have almost nothing to lose. You mm-hmm. know, it's just five minutes of courtship activity, and then they can run off and, you know, never have anything to do with it ever again. Whereas mm-hmm. females aren't given that choice. You know, they're literally connected to that offspring, and it's, you know, only until the baby's born that they have any choice at all about mm-hmm. that or not they have, want to have any connection to that at all. And so, Do you feel that that supports, there's, there's two areas of misremethod, there's the the screening qualifying part, and there's the comfort and trust part. Do you feel that it supports both of those ideas? I think it does, yeah. I mean, I don't know if Mystery talks so much about screening, but I think he does talk about, you know, attractive qualities that you need to convey to the woman in order for her to feel like, you know, this is something she wants to, you know, get involved with. Mm-hmm. Right, it's kind of it's kind of like qualification in, in reverse. That's right, yeah, that's one way to look at it, I think. Big decision for her. So that was where you started, and this is one of the, the things I noticed you wrote in the paper. Uh, men desire more lifetime sex partners, seek sexual intercourse sooner, and are frequently more motivated to seek casual sex than are women. So that's kind of based on this parental investment. And so you're saying that's very well supported. Is that all guys, or is there some kind of variance in that? You know, are some guys less like this, and some guys more like this? Is it based on the opportunities we have around us? Like, for instance, if, if we get really good at this, if we get really good skills and we have more opportunities to date, you know, meet women and so on, do we go towards this kind of behavior more? Yeah, I think that's probably certainly the case, that if you're given a lot of opportunities, you're probably going to be more selective and picky as a man. Mm. And in fact, that's one of the things that we talked about in the paper is that, um, you know, having and showing that you have high standards, you know, automatically makes you more attractive as a male. This is something that's kind of been known for a while. So there was this famous study done back in uh, the late 80s uh, by Clark and Hatfield Mm. where they had men and women approach other men and women on college campuses and just ask them straight up, you know, would you like to have sex with me? (laughs) It it actually took a long while for this published paper to get published because back in the, you know, late 80s, evolutionary psychology was just um, forming as a field. And so a lot of people just thought it was a waste of time or bunk or why would anyone be interested in that? Mm. Um, And it was only later when the question was framed in terms of evolutionary evolutionary psychology that people found, you know, realized why it was so important. What they found predictably 
might think is that right around 5% or less that the women actually consented to that, whereas for men, I think it was upwards of 75% that they said, yes, I'd be interested in something like that. Mm. So I think that's a pretty clear, nearly black and white example of how this difference in parental investment leads to different ways of thinking about, you know, mm. uh, casual sex. Two points on there then. There's, there's a YouTube channel, I don't know if you've seen it, I can't remember which one, but I'll put it in the show notes, where they've basically taken that study you just referred to and they've done a reality TV show kind of out of it and they've you know put a ton of videos with men and women approaching people and asking directly if they want to have sex or not. Um, <laughs> so you see all these people agreeing and like walking around the corner and then getting surprised like you're on reality TV. Um, so, you know, I'll link to that, but basically they took that study and they proved it because you see pretty much the same thing. Um, Is that right? So yeah. they found similar results. Okay, yeah, well. similar results. And I think they, they must have done it hundreds and hundreds of times because there's tons of these videos. So, you know, a few laughs there. You know, I'm coming from like my experience with people who've been in this community for a very long time in that... Some people go down the casual sex route and once they get good at this, they get the skills, then they start, you know, they just go and have more and more and more casual sex and they just, they want to enjoy and they enjoy a lot of quantity. Other guys, they go another way, whereas they go into a long-term relationship and they focus on lots of other areas of their life. You know, it could be traveling, could be business, could be like hobbies, you know, all these other things about life that they, they want to do. And they kind of settle down with a girl that they like and they're not interested in this kind of casual sex thing. So that's why I asked you if there is any variance in there. And I don't know if you've ever read Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. He also talks about this a bit from a self-development perspective where he, he looked at all, you know, all, all the great business leaders of the time. And he found that many of them, once they got to like their 30, 35, 40, they stopped like basically running around chasing women. And he said they would like reinvest all of that sexual energy in doing other things in their life. In that case, these were business leaders, so it was business. And they would make a lot out of that because all the sexual energy. So he said that was key to their self-development and their growth and, you know, and the growth of their businesses and all of this. So I'm just wondering from your perspective, you know, is there variance in, in the studies as to like why men behave differently, especially when they've got the skills or... Is it something to do with age or is there any other factors that you know that are supported by science like would, would predict this kind of variance? Yeah, I mean, I, I think like everything in uh, evolutionary psychology is that a lot of it depends upon the environmental context in which you are. Mm -hmm. And So you could imagine a situation in which, you know, a man was put on a desert island with a thousand single women yep. and no other men. And then you could put that same man on the same desert island with just his wife and you could look at know, uh, you know, how devoted he was to his, to his wife in both cases, you know, how much, you, you know, infidelity you might find, as it were. Mm. So there's a distinction that um, biologists make between something called, like, social monogamy in the one case, and then, like, uh, sexual monogamy in the other case. And so social monogamy is something like mating institutions, like marriage, relationships, and that sort of thing. Sexual monogamy is something like lust, you know, your sex drive, your libido. And a lot of times those two things can be in conflict. So mm -hmm. I think that's part of what human nature is about. And not just for men, but I think women have a similar kind of conflict of interest. It's, you know, it's wanting to um, have a deep connection with someone, fall in love, you know, being able to share intimate things about who you are and have someone understand who you really are. And then we have this kind of polar, you know, extreme in the opposite direction that wants sexual variety and that wants to explore different things and mm -hmm. sow our oats, as it were. And even women have this you know, tendency to a lesser degree, you know, not quite as extreme as men do. But um, I think it's trying to reconcile these two opposites that 
kind of defines us as, as being human. And I think, you know, as we get older and, you know, we're not quite as motivated or energetic as we were when we were younger, we, we maybe try to settle for, you know, perhaps settle isn't the right word, but we want something more long-term, something more stable where we can, you know, settle down and have a connection with someone as opposed to just these kind of superficial connections that might have been satisfying for us in our youth. And so I think it's, it's, it's probably dependent on age, but I think it's probably dependent on the context that you're in. So, you know, there's societies all over the world that are, you know, polygamous, and then there are other societies that are more monogamous. And so human nature is more flex- flexible, I think, than most people realize. And it's, you're saying there's a degree of self-control there, that it's not biological robots being pushed around by our hormones and stuff that we have no control of. You think there's a degree of self-control involved? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Biology is not destiny. I mean, you've heard that cliche before, probably, but um, it's, it's really the flexibility that makes us adaptive as a species. You know, we certainly have these predispositions and impulses to work at, to act and think in one way or the other, but right. it's really the, the flexibility and ability to make decisions and choose, you know, the hmm. better to alternatives that makes us more adaptable as a species. So I think maybe not everyone always realizes that, but... One, one other thing I just thought, like, uh, promiscuity. Do you have any knowledge of, did you look at any of the promiscuity studies related to this? Like, for instance, I know there's uh, studies based on different races and things like that. Did you look at any of that? We didn't per se for this particular mm. paper, but one thing that we did kind of kind of have in the back of our minds, I think, is something called the Coolidge effect, which is mm-hmm. kind of, it's, it's almost like this novelty-seeking uh, behavior that's been shown in a wide variety of species, in rats and humans and so on. And so it's just the idea that in many species, you often find that, say, you put a, like, put a male rat in a cage with you know, yeah. five or six other females, given the choice, um, he'll mate with all those females in the cage to a point of exhaustion. Right. I've heard about this study. It's hilarious. Yeah, nearly, it, in, the rat nearly kills itself, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but then when, you get to a point of exhaustion where you can't even move anymore. But then you put a novel female mouse into that cage. And all of a sudden, he's got renewed enthusiasm. And because of this novel stimulus, you know, mm. he's ready to go again. And so that's really what the Coolidge effect is about, is just um, novelty. You know, it's the, it's the desire and sexual interest that just comes from having a novel female in your surroundings. That's been shown in you know, a wide variety of species, including humans. So. Excellent, excellent. Moving on. Thank God we're not just rats and we can stop before, <laughs> before we kill ourselves. That would, that's would be There'd be some people getting into these uh, dating skills area and getting good at it and basically, you know, signing their own death warrant. That wouldn't be cool. Another area which you looked at was indirect versus direct method and some of the different scientific explanations for why they work. You looked at, a di- you said direct method, which isn't really part of mystery method. It was more introduced by, I don't know, Bad Boy and Shark. But I think it may be covered in, I mean, it's obviously covered in some other areas. I don't think it was ever covered in any of the mystery method, uh, to my knowledge. But anyway, you compared these two methods. How, what, what did you find? Was, was one more supported than the other, or they're both kind of supported? How did it work? Well, I think our, our take on it was that both of them really had equal support, but for pretty different reasons. Mm. And so when we looked at the direct openers, we found that there are things like social dominance and social risk-taking and courageousness that has mm. long been known to be very attractive to, to women when used in the right context. But then on the other hand, we also found that, you know, using indirect, quote-unquote indirect openers were also effective in their own right because they demonstrated things like creativity, intelligence, sense of humor, mm. and things that were attractive to women for, for slightly different reasons. So I think, you know, if the question is like which one is better or which one is more effective, 
I think really that comes back to the my original previous point about environmental context that I was making before. So mm. you know, you can imagine in a situation where, say, you're at a bar and there's women there. Maybe some of them are looking to meet a guy, meet somebody new. You can imagine that situation. The direct opener might be very effective because it's kind of no nonsense and it's also portraying you in a way that's very you know, demonstrates things like social dominance and risk taking and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas in another context, if say like your best friend introduced you to a sister or something like that, maybe a direct opener wouldn't be the best <laughs> strategy to use in that in that context because you know perhaps come across as very awkward, especially if you're saying that right in front of the space. Um, Scientifically, what what would be the thing that would say that that's not appropriate? Is it because it's aggressive, dominant behavior? I think it's just a matter of it's an environmental context, and that probably sounds a bit vague, but. Mm. Um, you know, it's the difference between, say, like an aggressive impulse that a, a cheetah might have. That would be adaptive in a situation that an enemy was attacking its, its babies or its cubs or something, mm. but it wouldn't want to have that same aggressive impulse on its own children or its own cubs. Mm. And so it's really about the environmental context in which some predispositions are adaptive and some are not. Mm. Okay, so, so when, when I was reading through it, I kind of got basically the direct method. Like you just said, just for guys, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, direct opener, like basically just walking up to a girl and saying, hi, I like you. Or, you know, something direct like that to show that you're interested in her. Indirect would be, you know, asking her some other question that doesn't show any interest first off. Or like, you know, start talking to her without directly communicating. Whatever it is, asking for directions or in a, in a club, asking her for the female opinion, which we kind of died about seven years ago, but some people um, st- still use it. But that's something that some, some people used to use a lot. You know, th- those are the two approaches we're talking about here. Now, from the direct method, so I understand is that you found that it was supported by the fact that confidence and dominant behaviors, which is required to go direct and show your interest like this, are supported by the literature. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at like, you know, any other, I mean, we're just an ape you know, when it comes right down to mm-hmm. it. So it's a behavior in like things like gorillas or chimpanzees, it's really the, the most socially dominant male in that group that mm-hmm. gets all the matings, mm-hmm. you know, almost to the exclusion of all the other males in the, in the group, unless, you know, the beta males can like figure out kind of some clever strategy to get a mating, like trickery or deception or something like that. Yep. And we're not so different. I mean, I think when you are dominant and confident in a way that shows that, you know, you're quote unquote alpha, you know, that can go a long way in the right context. But um, I think the context is important. I mean, that's, right. I can say for myself that I've used that, you know, opener in some situations and had it go brilliantly and have just the women's attention wrapped right on me, you know, it's, right. you know like, don't go away. I want to talk to you. And okay. I know that if I'm Another context, it falls flat. And she's like, uh, that's a bit weird to say that, you know, in this context. Mm. And, you know. So, I mean, is there any scientific search which kind of lays out different contexts? No, we didn't look at that specifically, just uh, probably for time issues. And, right. You know. your, your study was pretty focused, it has to be. Yeah, mm. yeah. But, you know, that's possible fodder for another follow-up study. I mean, mm. I think my co-author would like to do a follow-up mm. study on the other mm. More specific areas of the paper, but we just, you know, for yeah. issues of time and resources, we didn't have all those things. Right, of course. So the, the basic conclusion of that was both of these methods can work. There's scientific support for both of them working. Is that- Absolutely, I think so. And um, But like anything that science tells you, I think, you mm. know, you really need to go out and try these things yourself and see if mm. they work, if they don't. And, um, you know, if you try it 50 yeah. or 100 
times and it doesn't work for you in any context, well, maybe try something different. Mm. Know, but, uh, when, when there is some scientific validation, it's just good. It helps guys have more confidence about what they're doing. This is a relatively intangible area of life. And the more clarity and kind of support of belief that we can give guys, I think helps them a lot. So that's why I thought I'm really glad to have you on the show here to give that kind of outlook. Does this work or does it not work? Because the indirect method you said works because you're able to communicate attractive traits, which you said was kind of like supported and you and you went through a list of them. One of them you brought out is humor and everyone says it's important, right? I don't think there's any, any of the experts out there, at least I haven't read any of their material, which says humor is a bad idea. Interestingly, women always say in surveys that I've seen, and I think a lot of the scientific literature that I've seen, I'd like your opinion on that, says that basically, you know, women are always attracted to humor. And you you brought that up. So let's look at that. How does humor help us attract women or influence mate selection? And and why is that based on on the literature? Is there any information on that? Yeah, I mean, humor is one of those things that we're just not beginning to understand, I think, as psychologists. And so it's Mm -hmm. been... Know, very you know intriguing to a lot of psychologists for quite some time now about why it is that women you know, find humor so attractive in a mate and you know, vice versa. I think men oftentimes find that as appealing also. So I think we're just now kind of scratching the surface as to what what's actually going on there. But what we can say at the moment is that the studies that have shown that humor tends to be correlated with intelligence mm. and that so it might be a proxy of something like genetic quality. Mm. Humor also seems to indicate things about creativity and how resourceful you can be in certain situations. So it could be something like an honest signal that like communicates to that other person that you, know, you really got the wherewithal to be creative and resourceful and mm-hmm. also optimistic in, in situations. And so, you know, it's easy to imagine you know, a lot of different situations where being optimistic and uh, mm. positive would you know, fare a lot better for your genes and being negative and being defeatist all of the time. So it could be that that's an honest signal of a lot of things, but we just haven't, as, as scientists, been able to really nail down all of those things quite yet, but uh, yeah. it's something we're still working on. We, we've been looking for the best advice for a long time, and I've honestly, you know, looked around for some kind of training or, or something to help guys with humor, and I've never found anything really effective. And I think part of that is because it's, it's really complicated. And, and as you said, like people don't really understand it. And, it. and it seems to involve quite a large component of an emotional intelligence and calibration, right? Because mm-hmm. something could be funny in one situation and then, you know, in another situation, it's not funny at all. And I've spent a lot of time in very different cultures. And, you know, I can tell you like something that's funny in Asia is not funny in the West and is not funny in Eastern Europe. Certainly not very funny in Africa. And, you know, the, the opposite goes like you take something like from Latin America and you put it in Asia and it's, it's shocking. It's not, it's not funny. So, you know, it's, there's a lot of this kind of like context involved, which seems to make it a more complex subject to get hold of. And it sounds like you're saying that the science hasn't kind of wrapped its, its papers and its research around that either. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, as you were saying, I think context is really important. And I think What's also interesting is that you know, I think developing a sense of humor takes time. You know, it's not mm-hmm. something that you're born with. I think you really have to immerse yourself in the cultural milieu that you find yourself in and try out a lot of things, you know, tell a lot of jokes that fall flat and don't always work as well as, you know, you might think they would. Mm-hmm. So I think humor is probably one of those things that you have a predisposition that you're perhaps born with, but then something you also have to develop over time. You know, trying out different things, some things that work, some things that don't. You know, very similar to dating and courtship itself. 
know, it's something that you really need to develop over time based on the social environment that you're brought up in. So even comedians, I know that, you know, to develop just an hour routine, had to go through hundreds of hours of like falling flat and telling horrible hmm. jokes just to get that like, you know, perfect 60 minute set. Right. And it's not as if like they just woke up one morning and had this brilliant, you know, compilation of jokes, it's something that they synthesized and refined and sculpted over time and making it this mm. really, you know, creative art form. Right. It's and a skill. It's a skill also. It's, it's, you know, it's something that can be learned. It's not like you, you have to have to be born with it. Some of the great things to do is read some of the autobiographies of uh, some of the top comedians. I think Steve Martin has one. And, you know, it's really good to read through them because, you know, they talk about the problems they had. And like you say, the hours that they spent practicing and falling on their face as well until they got it down to an art when it was working and they were funny most of the time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's like, like any skill, like, you know, whether it's courtship and dating or learning to play tennis, you know, you can be uh, born with a certain innate predisposition to do, you know, maybe slightly better than somebody else, but it's hours and hours and hours of honing on your craft and refining it that really makes the difference between the guy who can, you know, have women swooning or women that are just kind of turned off. Right. So, um, I think... Yeah, not only is it an honest signal of like how intelligent and creative you are, but also how much work and perseverance that you put into that craft. Mm. And so it's difficult to say why humor is such a good indicator or honest signal of mm. those qualities like intelligence and creativity, but you know, hopefully future research will be able to shed some more light on those questions. Well, it's great, it's great to hear. You know, we got like a candid answer here. Well, we don't know, right? Science doesn't really know why this is so important. Yeah. There's a few ideas there, but, you know, it's basically, you know, there's going to be some future research out there, which tells us what humor is really about and more detail about it. One of the subjects we didn't touch on, I thought might be related to the direct approach, is mirror neurons and, you know, the transfer of emotions that is covered in some research, also some books. I don't know if you've looked into that for this study. No, we didn't look at mirror neurons specifically mm. for uh, our study, um, but it is interesting in the, uh, in the sense that it's this new area that's only been around for the past decade or so, which seems to show that you know we're kind of intimately connected in almost kind of this spooky way that mm. you know, when we watch someone do a behavior or say a certain thing, those same neurons that are fired in their brains tend to be fired in our own brains. And mm. so it seems to be something about perception and social behavior that is really intimately connected to where you can really empathize with a person almost on an unconscious level when you're watching them or observing them do something. Yep. Um, I think that's some, that speaks to something very deep about human nature is that we're fundamentally social species. Mm. And there's something, you know, that was must have been very important as far as our survival and reproduction for that system to exist at all. That's another area like humor that we're just really starting to scratch the surface on. Right, so. right um, but it's nice that we've got like MRI, magnetic resonance imaging scans now that we can, can actually see these neurons. Basically, you can compare maps and put people in different situations to understand. Is that correct? Like, is that how that area of research is actually getting like more detailed, technical, more kind of hard versus like soft? That's right. Yeah. I mean, fMRI has really been our, our best tool for understanding yeah. this better. Actually found like in subsequent studies that not only does this system exist in, in humans, but it seems to exist in other primates as well. Mm. So like monkeys and chimpanzees, mm. they right. all seem to have some trace of this system, which, you know, 
suggests a very old evolutionary basis mm. for it, um, which is uh, interesting. But, um, so, so, so for people listening, the whole idea of mirror neurons is that basically when I'm looking at you and I'm talking about something and I'm ex- you know expressing something and expressing emotions and I got I got facial you know I'm, I'm moving facial muscles and so on, you're going to perceive movements of my neurons based on everything you're seeing and you're going to mirror those neurons. Is that correct? The way you understand it too. Yeah, I'd probably phrase it slightly differently. So the same neurons that are involved in moving your face Mm. and talking and gesturing and so on, those same neurons that control those things in your brain are simultaneously activated in someone else's brain while Mm. they're observing you or watching you. It's it's kind of like to understand you, I have to do that, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, There almost seems to be this kind of unconscious or implicit empathy thing going on. I yeah. mean, that's how else to explain it. But yeah. um, So it could be an important aspect of our communication, I guess. Absolutely. Like in, yeah. in, in order to understand what you're saying, in order what you're doing, I have to kind of copy the neurons in my brain that you're using to do these things. That's right. Yeah. A lot of people have argued that mirror neurons are kind of the, the missing link mm. for studies of language evolution, which is kind of my mm. primary area of expertise. Um, right. I don't think that's quite been demonstrated yet, uh, at least in a you know more specific context of my mm. you know, testable hypothesis. But just on the surface, I mean, there's obviously some sort of an important aspect to that in terms of communication and yeah. understanding other people's intentions that so far seems to be pretty clear. So You said you used some neurobiology and I, I've you know read a bit about the mirror neurons. I really like the concept because it's harder science, you know, it's using the functional magnetic resonance imaging so we can actually see what's going on and i was talking with robert green last week and we were talking about his rake character which is basically the seductive character who is completely comfortable with his emotions and you know often we associate with very romantic very seductive personalities who are just very direct a bit like we were talking about the direct approach earlier if you think about celebrities like if you look at videos on youtube of russell brand he's just very in the moment emotional and he's just kind of full-on with the journalists and so on and that, that's the kind of thing and so you know the way i'm looking at that currently is that it has to do a bit with the mirror neurons because you're transferring those emotions to them and there's currently there's one of my friends david tierney brought out a product of training for this called the desire system recently which goes into that so it's kind of like a, a newer area but i think it's really interesting because it has this you know hard science which is currently getting established. It's not there yet, but it's harder than a lot of the other studies because we actually can see pictures of the brain which are saying something about it. That's right, yeah, and I think um, it's appealing to a lot of psychologists because um, you know, historically sometimes, at least social psychologists, they use questionnaires and subjective mm. measures of you know, trying to understand you know, what's going on between yep. people. But something like a mirror neuron, it's a very, there's no subjective element to that. I mean, you know, when... You see these neurons lighting up in two people's brains at the same time, just because one person is observing another person. Mm. There's not there's not much subjective element to that, right? You know? And it's, I guess it was surprising at first. It's like, huh? Yeah, why is it doing that? <laughs> right? It's kind yeah, of like- it's very mysterious and spooky, and we really still don't understand, you know, what's going on there. But uh, to me, it speaks about the very deep kind of social connectedness that we have, you know, mm. as a species, you know because of our connection with other social animals like chimpanzees and gorillas and other primate species. Well, great. We've done the topic of mirror neurons. I wanted to ask you about that because I know you're also a molecular biologist. You're into molecular biology before. So I guess you're kind of into that data and everything before. Okay. So another area you tackled in the paper was 
In the mystery method, it's known as pre-selection, but you referred to something that's called mate choice copying. Could you talk a little bit about the scientific support for that? Yeah, mate choice copying is something that's been understood by evolutionary biologists for a while now, and it's mm. been documented in a wide variety of species, everything from fish to antelope to mm. birds. I mean, it's very common among a lot of bird species, mm. but it's only just recently that scientists have started looking at whether or not this phenomenon exists in humans. Mm. Anecdotally, it's been supported by, you know, people like Mystery and other dating coaches, I think, you know, when they've you know, been in, pub in public gatherings and so on. But <clears throat> there's been now at least two or three other studies that have shown that this is a real effect, which is, you know, pretty interesting. And apparently it's been exploited by Mystery and other dating coaches for probably longer than it's been fully understood by the scientific community. So, mm. um, I mean, it's just basically just the idea that by... For, well, for example, they've shown that like sage grouse, which is kind of like this bird, take like a, a fake sage grouse, yeah. male sage grouse, and surround him with other females, whether those are like, you know, a stuffed dummy or mm. uh, actual sage grouses. All of the other female sage grouses just kind of collectively congregate among this, you know, <laughs> male. It's like supposedly the most popular male in there, even if it's a stuffed, you know, wow. male sage grouse, you know, not even a real, a real animal. So maybe someone should start selling stuffed models um, to, to take with you to clubs or something. Yeah, yeah, it could work. Human, humans may be a little bit more difficult than grouses, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I think we're a little bit difficult. <laughs> we can see think, through that. That's right, yeah. But I think the basic principle still holds, and this is commonly known as lacking, lacking behavior. And so you've seen this right. in birds lots of other species and it's, it's it's not entirely surprising that you find it in humans but um mm. you know there it is it seems to be a real a real phenomenon yeah and like the way the scientific community the name it's given it make choice copying that actually sounds very it makes it easier for me to understand actually like oh that girl likes him and so the other girl is copying her and she mm. now likes her you know it's something I, I guess is pretty easy to explain as well so i kind of like the term that the scientific community has given to that so another area is like um, what we call kino or touching, uh, like is, you know, I think not just mystery method, but most of the methods talk about touching and its importance. What kind of uh, scientific support is there for that? Well, I think it's, it's long been understood by, you know, psychologists, the, the important role of touch, not just mating behavior, but, you know, really social bonding and, and getting to know a person on, a, you know, a very deep and intimate level. And so... Mm. Touch is one of these things that it kind of stands out from, from speech and language in the sense that it, it can't really be faked. And so my supervisor, Robin Dunbar, for example, is famous for this kind of grooming language hypothesis, which says that if you look at all primates, for example, the way they have a social bonding and becoming more connected to a person is by grooming each other's back. And part of that, obviously, is for, you know, removing parasites and cleaning the other person and that sort of thing. But... A large part of that seems to be devoted to establishing a strong social bond and becoming more connected and um, mm. in someone else's graces. It's only when you have human groups that are so large compared to like other primates. So humans live in groups of about 150, at least if you look at you know primitive hunter-gatherer tribes, mm. whereas most apes live in groups of about 50 individuals. So it's my supervisor's hypothesis that at some point during human evolution, language replaced grooming as a way of social bonding and, and becoming more connected with people. Mm. What that really says from a, um, a touch standpoint is that 
there seems to be something very basic and, and, and rudimentary about touch that you know we have from six million years of evolution or more that really works as a very strong kind of social bonding mechanism and becoming closer to another person in a way that not even language can really replace. Great. Yeah. I mean, every, everyone pretty much agrees. I guess the whole thing is like how not to go overboard with it and how to know how much is appropriate. Is there anything you found which kind of looks at that aspect of it? Like what is appropriate? What is inappropriate? I know. I mean, it varies according to cultures as well. So it's probably a very difficult subject to look at. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I don't know if there's any science that would really back that up, but I think it just has to do with kind of social, basic social intuition. I think when you first approach a person, when you start touching them right away, it could maybe seem a little bit awkward, but... Yeah. You mentioned the oxytoxin link, which... Yeah, yeah. Which seemed to me like, I, I like kind of hard science. I like technical chemicals and like I was saying, mm -hmm. like resonance uh, machines and, and so on. You know, for me, that was attractive, that idea, because you can actually detect hormone changes based on how much people are touching. Yeah, I, th I think there's a trade-off. I mean, if you start touching a person too quickly and too much, like you said, it can come across as creepy or inappropriate. But there's there's a, a polar opposite to that, whereas if you go on five or six, seven, eight, nine, ten dates with a person and you never touch them at all, well, then you're probably going to be just their friend, right? Right. Um, because, I mean, you have to move, make the move at some point. So there's some, there's some place where she's comfortable enough with you that touch can be really effective, and that's for you know, the neurochemicals that you were talking about before. And so they found that, for example, like when other apes groom each other, there's a very intense kind of neuropharmological thing that happens. And so where mm. basically you get this huge endorphin hit from right. when another animal is grooming you. And mm. the same seems to be true with humans too. And so there's something very like seductive, if that's the way you want to use the word, mm. about being touched and also touching another person. You get this literally an endorphin hit, you know, almost the same way you would as if you, you know, hit your knee with a hammer. Mm. And, you know, so you got this intense kind of endorphin release that gives you this mild high. Yeah. You know, if you can associate that endorphin hit with being touched or touching another person, I mean, obviously that can be a very strong, like, um, mechanism of social bonding and feeling intimate with a person. I think there's a lot to be said with this advice that Misery gives out. You know, he kind of, like, gives a touch and then pulls it away. Mm. And so you feel the loss of that, you know, neurochemical hit that you're getting from, you know, from being touched or touching someone else. You know, you were getting this endorphin release and all of a sudden, you know, you don't have it anymore. And so you want, you want more of that. It's almost like a, a craving the way a drug addict might crave, you know, mm. another hit of whatever drug he's taking. When you're talking about endorphins there, what I was thinking about is some personal experience of mine is that I spent some time in Latin America and I spent some time in Asia, particularly I'm thinking of the Japan example. Now, Japanese tend to touch a lot less. I noticed when I was dating or meeting Japanese girls in the past is that to touch, they would react. I mean, sometimes you could actually see the difference, the changing color in their skin. I really felt that there was that kind of biological change especially on when you initiate touch for the first time. And I felt like they felt it a lot more intensely than, say, a Latin girl who, as a, as a population, they tend to touch people a lot more. So maybe their endorphins are spiked less or they're more used to the endorphin spikes from this kind of thing. I, I imagine that this isn't supported by any kind of study in there. It's just some kind of remark that maybe some scientific study in the future may look into that and see that there's some kind of correlation with how often we experience touch and how our tolerance for these kind of spikes in hormones and so on and how they react. Yeah, I mean, I think that the neurochemical system is always going to be in place. You know, it's a part of human biology, but mm. 
as I was saying about context before, you know, there's mm. all these different cultural you know, standards about what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. Mm. And so if you're going to use this information to try to give them better graces with a person or, you know, improve your relationship with them, I think it's important to keep in mind, you know, what is culturally appropriate and what, and what is not. And I think you can do more damage by trying to force drugs as a, on a person, as it were. You know? <laughs> <laughs> if that, you know, I mean, Here, take this it. endorphin. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I think you need to, like any of these things, you need to be socially appropriate and socially savvy about what it is that you're actually doing. And so when in one context, something might be 100% appropriate and expected, in another context might be completely inappropriate and not something that you should do. And so I think whenever you're using any of this information, just like anything else, you should gauge it on the person's comfort levels. You know, are they expecting this? Are they wanting this? Or are they not completely interested? And you're going to have to gauge that based on how, you know, attracted they, you think they are to you and so on and so forth. You know, this is like anything in evolutionary psychology. It's based on the environmental context in which you are, you know, mm. you know whether it's, some tribe in Sumatra or whether it's the person you just met sitting next to you on the sofa, you know, you have to look at all these different, you know, cultural codes and yeah. uh, decide for yourself what's appropriate and what's not. So. Right. There's limits, you know, you can bend culture a little bit and their expectations, you know, just to talk on this for a quick bit is like, I think the context can be bent provided you, you do it in the right way. It can, it can be placed as kind of like an excitement, something a bit different. Depends on the personality of the person. Depends on the context. Like, for instance, a Japanese girl on holiday in Australia or London or something is going to be a little bit different to uh, someone, you know, you meet in Tokyo during the day or something when she's out going to work or whatever. You can bend some of the rules. You don't absolutely have to stick to some of the cultures and, and they'll be okay with that as long as, you know, you keep with certain boundaries and you lead in a positive way, I guess. That's kind of a complicated topic, so... And we're getting kind of off, off track here. So I know that there was some areas that you felt that there wasn't as much scientific basis for and that should either be explored in the future to see if there is there or was there any areas there where you felt there wasn't? Like there was actually science which was saying, mm, I don't think that's right. Yeah, so the ones we, the main ones that you talked about in the paper would be uh, negging and, um, and then peacocking. So I'll start with negging first. Right. So we didn't find a whole lot of information about you know, using these kind of very subtle jibes on, you know, how worthy maybe, you know, you thought this woman was and that sort of thing. And I think there's also part of the problem, too, is that there's a lot of misunderstanding about exactly what negging is. Mm. And so from a scientific perspective, it's a little bit tricky to try to test that idea because you don't always know if you're getting exactly what the concept is referring to. Mm. But from what my understanding is, is that it has to do with showing that you have high standards as a male, and from that perspective, I think there is literature to support that idea that women tend to be more attractive to men that have high standards. So if you're a guy that with lots and lots of choices, you know, it's, it's almost kind of a counterpoint to a pre-selection or make copying argument. So if you have lots and lots of women on, you know, around you and you're not desperate and you have many opportunities, naturally you're going to be a bit more selective just based on opportunity cost and, you know, how much time you have on your hands. Um, so that, right. So that's kind of, you're saying that that's a pretty weak link. You, yeah, you couldn't yeah, really directly support the idea of negging, which at the basis is, support, you know, it's basically saying I'm not interested. 
in you. So, so it's a way of so, communicating. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not interested. You know, I'm. I'm not showing any intent here. I'm showing that I'm disinterested. That's right. Yeah. So so far as I know, that there hasn't been a study that's shown that yes, if you do this, women will find that attractive. Yeah. So I think, but that's not to say that someone will test that idea in the future and find a different result. But to date, we don't really have any good evidence for that, as far as I can know. Great. And the other area you looked at was peacocking. Yeah, so peacocking was an interesting idea because I think both me and Igor felt that there was probably some truth to that, but we just, in all of our search of the literature, we hadn't found anything that could really back up or support that claim. And so we didn't feel like, you know, trying to argue that it was right when we didn't have any way of substantiating that was was appropriate. Interestingly, there's just been a study that's that come out conducted by... Um, someone at the Harvard Business School looking at something she calls the red sneakers effect. Yes. And I think it was published in the Journal of Consumer Research or something like that. But mm. um, basically the idea was that, you know, when you have these high-profile figures like you know, Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, people that are obviously high-status individuals, what's interesting, when they go to a board meeting and they're wearing, like, a sweatshirt or a jumper or just, like, these crummy, like, you know, sit-around-the-house clothes, they're actually, what this uh, study found, they're actually judged to be higher status than they would be if they were in a business suit, which is somewhat counterintuitive, but mm. according to the authors and the people who did this study, they thought that it's basically what you call peacocking. You know, by standing out, making yourself slightly different, slightly eccentric compared to the norm, you're actually considered to be slightly higher status because in some sense it's almost like a costly signal. You know, you're showing that you can deal with that social pressure mm. and showing that you can that you have enough balls in a sense to you know to walk around like that right so the authors that looked at this phenomenon found it in a wide variety of contexts mm. so they were business board meetings and business school interactions to having people go into luxury boutiques so mm. they have you know somebody dressed in a dirty t-shirt walk into like um, a luxury boutique shop and then have that same you know individual walking like you know wearing a mink and they found that the people walking around in dirty t-shirt were actually given more credibility and more respect, and they were expected to spend more money than the person walking around in uh, mink fur. Mm. In my mind, I think that that basically shows the, the fundamental idea behind peacocking is right. Ah, okay. Um, so this study came afterwards. Yours was in 2012, and this one was more recent, right? Yeah, mm. yeah I just came out a couple months ago and when I found this study I shot it out to my co-author right away and I said oh wow look at this you know it's a shame we didn't you know have a chance to mention that in our paper because you know we felt like you know it basically captured the essential idea behind talking yeah well I mean it's also a little bit of common sense I mean I think when, when I look around today I see a lot of people kind of chasing to to have a, some kind of different image right you've got tattoos you've got piercings and, and if you think about it like it's getting more and more like different people are kind of like getting more individual with their looks and kind of chasing to be different out there. So there has to be some kind of reason behind that, right? And this this could be an explanation. Yeah, there's been other scholars that have argued that things like tattoos or dyeing your hair yeah. or you know wearing flashy rings or whatever it might be, yeah. it makes you stand out, makes you interesting and unique. So mm. even if women don't find it immediately attractive, I mean their attention is going to be drawn to you, you know, mm. just by sheer fact that you're standing out. So. Mm. I think as long as it's done in a, a clever way and not in a way that makes you look, you know, like, I don't know, a social loser or something like that. Yeah. Or in the case of Mark Zuckerberg, where it's already understood that he's a high-status mm. male. You know, I think it just adds to your kind of myth mythology 
by you know mm. having the guts to do that sort of thing. Right. Yeah, I, I can see totally. It's like it's a kind of dominant move. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna be me, and I'm gonna stand out. As as you mentioned, right. I mean, you get noticed and, you know, that that's like for some guys, I know like their problem is that they just don't get noticed. Even when they approach, sometimes they don't make enough noise. They don't stand close enough for the girl actually to notice them. If you are getting noticed, that's kind of like 25% already there. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's oftentimes a huge part of it is just, you know, having them draw their attention on you and then, you know, hopefully you can kind of take it from there. <laughs> Excellent. So were there any surprises for you when you went through the science? Because, you know, you said you've got your own experiences in this, you know, for, for a while beforehand. When you looked at the science, did you find anything that surprised you? That kind of rejected some of the ideas you had or some of the things you'd seen? Or For myself, I mean, personally, I think I was a bit surprised when I started looking at, at a little bit of community, community literature on direct openers. Because mm-hmm. I guess that was something that just on the face of it, it seemed like it would never work. You know, mm-hmm. I think walk up to a random person and say something like that and have them respond in a positive manner. I think in the beginning when I was first reading about this stuff, the indirect openers kind of made more logical logical sense to me. And I could see how, you know, if you showed a person you know, what kind of a person you were first, then, you know, they would hopefully respond favorably to that. But I think direct openers, that, that was a bit of a, an epiphany for me when I actually went out and tried those things for myself to see if they worked or not. Right. I was surprised that they actually did. You know, it's, it's really interesting. When direct openers first came out, it was about 2003. And there was a, I mean, most people were at that point were doing some kind of mystery method. Before that, actually, it had been more direct. It's kind of funny because of the way it evolved. In the late 90s, it was kind of like direct. And most people were just kind of, it wasn't very structured, but most people were doing some kind of direct thing. And then like mystery came along, he became a bit more popular and, you know, his theories started propagating and more people started doing this indirect style. And then Bad Boy and Shark, Franco Magami came, came along. We're in these private forums called Mystery Lounge and they were basically calling people girls because they were using indirect openers and they say, why can't you just tell the girl you like her? You know, yeah. and it was pretty immature conversation. But at the time they did it so much that a lot of the guys started trying it and we, we tried it. Me and a couple of friends, we had our own company. So we were just like exploring new things to teach guys all the time. Because we'd been using indirect for a while, I think it didn't work, even though I'd actually started with direct and it didn't work. And I think it's because something we were doing subconsciously at the time, you know? So I think yeah. what I'm trying to bring up here is like, if you have started to do it one way and then you just kind of go half-heartedly or you, you know, you don't believe in something and you try and go the other way, like the direct, I, I think you can't take an early like opinion on that. You have to like really give it a really, really good try you know, better, like, you know, kind of see it in action, see it working if possible, because direct totally does work. I, I, I think either way works and it's fine from, you know, what I've seen, it works great. There's many guys like Yad. I don't know if you know Yad. Um, he's got tons of infield, uh, infield video footage of him doing, you know, the direct style in the, in the streets. And, you know, I've seen him and, you know, and there's many other guys doing it and it, it works great probably for some of the scientific reasons you brought up. But from a learning perspective, you know, I know it can be difficult for guys to switch their mindset between the two. Which, you know, you've probably also seen is why you wanted to tackle that as well, because you get people who kind of say it's indirect, nothing else works or direct and nothing else works. And, you know, the reality is that both work. Is that what you'd say, like the science could could probably say? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. But I think what's interesting about direct is that what's maybe slightly different from indirect is that to me, it's not so much about the content of what you're saying. And so the whole point that we were trying to make in our paper is that it's not the specific words that you're using when you use a direct opener. It's how you, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. 
Right. So things like social dominance and confidence, social yeah. risk-taking, courageousness. Those are the things that the woman's being attracted to. It's not mm. so much, you know, the specific words that you're using. Yeah. So I think, the, and I've found in my own experience, it's, it's how I make the delivery. You know, it's how, how, how confident am I in, in saying that when I say it, that I, that I feel like it's going to work. You know, I feel like the more I know that the more confident I am that's going to work, most of the time it tends to work. But if I just kind of go in there half-hearted and be like, oh, it's, you know, I wonder if this will do anything, she's probably not going to go for it. She's going to be like, well, this guy's you know, he's faking it. You know, he doesn't actually, he can't back up what he's, you know, he's not practicing what he preaches. He doesn't back it up with anything. So I think they, they you know, hear what you're saying and they just walk away. So one of the things I saw in the paper is how effective strategies of women are on us. You know, because at one point, you were talking kind of like about the ethics at the, towards the end, which might connect with why the academics asked you to change some things. I'd like to talk about that now, if possible. But you said this, you said women are manipulating perceived attractiveness through use of perfume, cosmetics, clothing, liposuction, cosmetic surgery. And we actually had a show on, on, on looks and how women do this and some of the science behind that with a guy called Dr. Gordon a few episodes back, which is interesting about that. And, you know, he's been studying that for like 20, 30 years now. But anyway, it disrupts, you know, mate choice by men. And you were saying that basically you could compare these kind of skill sets we're developing to those. Yeah, I mean, so in my mind, what dating coaches and pickup artists and what have you, whatever you want to call them, in my mind, it kind of, it's not even giving men like a, an advantage over women, but it's kind of leveling the playing field in some sense because mm. I feel like women have had these things all along for, mm. you know, 100 years or more. And so they've had girlfriends that they can talk to. They have plastic surgeons that they can go to. They have, you know, makeup, clothing that they can wear. All of these different resources, I mean, however you want to count them up to improve their success in dating relationships. Whether it's, you know, social support or material support or plastic surgery or whatever it might be. Um, whereas men, I don't feel like I've had the same, you know, when we're having a problem with our girlfriend, what do we do about that? You know, we can, you know, have a beer uh, with a friend at the pub and say, oh, this sucks. And, and then that's kind of the end of the conversation. And then there's no, historically, at least until the community came along, there was no outlet or resource for men to go to to try to help them improve this area of their lives. You know, if it wasn't working, then it was almost, in fact, taboo to even mention that you had a problem. <laughs> you know, men are just supposed to intuitively and inherently know how to get women and how to be experienced and how to have, you know, success in this area of their lives. And they're not supposed to even admit that they have any problems with that. Um, whereas with women, I think it's generally more accepted that, you know, oh, there was this dirty guy that, you know, da 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 and I'm going to talk about it with my girlfriends, and now we're going to go out and, you know, pamper ourselves with coffee and, you know, get her back on the horse and find another great guy and so on and so forth. And I think there's this unfortunate stereotype that men are these, they know everything there is to know about dating and relationships and sometimes they hurt women whether you know intentionally mm. or unintentionally and i think the flip side of that is not always talked about that women are using just as many strategies and ways of manipulating and you know trying to get what they yeah. want in dating relationships that maybe men have or have not used historically right so, Dr. Gordon Pato, he was talking about, basically, it's scientifically proven the, the huge amount of influence, all of these factors, all of these things that women are working on have on us. I was wondering if guys get to the point where they see through it, 
I don't know, we were talking about this control versus biology thing a little bit earlier, and maybe age and maturity. I mean, it could be that our testosterone dies down as we age, although there's ways to prop that up, and that you know, we're less biologically driven to these kind of signals, or that over age, our brains you know, evolve a bit and we get more control over. We can actually say, oh, she's wearing really awesome lipstick and eyelashes, and she's, she's had awesome uh, liposuction and all this stuff, uh, you know, but I can see all of that. It'd be interesting to see what kind of degree of control we have there. So you mentioned that the paper had a, some changes, some revisions. What was that circling around? Yeah, there are a number of problems, I think. There, there was kind of subtle with like the wording and so on. And so because this was an, an applied evolutionary psychology paper, one of the things that they, they wanted us to talk about was like the ethics involved, you know, the pros mm-hmm. and cons, whether or not there was an ethical issue at all. And what we wanted to try to argue was with like, any piece of information or technology, there's always a you know, possibility for abuse. So mm. you know, whether it's you know, learning how to operate a firearm or anything you might use in that respect can be used for positive or negative purposes. And so they wanted us to talk about whether there were any downsides to this. And that was something that we kind of strayed away from in the beginning draft of our paper because we, we just wanted to present the facts and we didn't want to go into like whether or not it was right or wrong. Right. Because it was an applied evolutionary psychology paper, that was something they felt like we needed to to bring up and address. Mm. We were going to, and we were fine with that. I think in retrospect, we felt like that was a good addition to the paper. Mm. I, I think we kind of welcomed the opportunity to, to talk about how we felt about this information. Mm. You know, it, it's all about how you use that information, and you know, it's really up to the individual. I mean, there's good people and bad people in society, and they can take information and, and do good or bad things with it. And, right. uh, you know, I can only say from my own standpoint that I've really made a conscious effort to be ethical and treat people with respect and not try to manipulate people into, you know, mm-hmm. one single agenda or something like right. that. But, yeah, I, you know, I, th- I, th- I think you make a great point. It kind of fits with what I was talking to about uh, with Robert Greene. You know, Robert Greene, all of his books... They just reflect reality. He writes about reality. You know, the, he's got the 48 laws of power, which talk about how people manipulate power between them. And this is what happens in the world. You know, people use it for good and they use it for bad. And, you know, that's the role of science as well, right? So look at the truth, the reality, and not kind of make judgments about whether it's good. Some people are going to use it for good and some people are going to use it for bad. We're going to use it for good. That's what we are. We're good guys. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, just a couple of more questions. Like, I'd be interested from your perspective, right, in, in terms of a learning process, because, you know, you're in academia and you, you have to write these papers which have rigor and stuff, so you go through this process, especially for your PhD, which you're currently closing up soon. Congratulations for that. What could, what could we do better ourselves, do you think, in terms of testing and verifying the things that we are learning and doing in this area of our life? Is there any ideas that you have, you, you've kind of taken from that academic background and used or think could be used to help us learn better in a more controlled fashion. When you say we, are you talking about like just lay people as... Yeah, as a- regular guys. So they don't have your background, but maybe there's a couple of insights you can bring, which would be good things to keep in mind for guys to just listen to this podcast that would be helpful to give them a bit more rigor about how they're learning and help them learn faster at the end of the day. Well, I mean, I think at the end of the day, you just have to get out and try things yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, I- only use like dating technology and science for that matter as, as a guideline or a guidepost to what you should or shouldn't do. But um, at the end of the day, you're not going to get any results and you're not going to see any success if you don't go out there and actually try some of these things. And when you're doing that, I think it helps to have a skeptical mindset about whether or not this stuff is real or just a bunch of 
you know, hogwash, mm-hmm. but you do have to make the effort, you know, and you can't just sit in your bedroom and read all day and expect good things to happen. You know, you have to try these things in a wide variety of contexts, you know, and not just in the bars and clubs, but in your social circles. And I think you also have to expect that you're going to fail. <laughs> and that's kind of the hard, hard thing to, to realize at first. But certainly I've failed many times, you know, when I was learning this stuff and still do. But on the other hand, I, still, I also have a lot of success and I never would have gotten to that point if I hadn't just gone out and actually tried things. So I think it's, mm. it's leaving your ego at the door and just, you know, telling yourself that you don't really care and you, you care about succeeding more than you do about failing. Yeah, that's those great points. And with that, at the end of this session, I always ask the same question, which is what is the top three things based on, you know, what you've learned from this kind of study, the scientific study, and then your own experiences also, the top three things that you would do to improve your results with women as fast as possible, if you had to start out from zero again? If I was starting from scratch, geez, I think the first thing I would do is just get a basic understanding of what courtship and dating is about. Mm-hmm. And so I would probably recommend Mysteries material and Neil Strauss's material, rules of the game. and um, mm-hmm. So just getting a basic understanding of what, you know, what you're actually looking at, you know, what, what kind of you know, rules of the game are, so to speak. <laughs> yep. I think the second thing I would do would be to just get out there and, and, and try some things, mm-hmm. you know, get out there and fail because you're going to fail a lot in the beginning and it's only after repeated failures and also figuring out what you want from this. And so everyone's got different goals and I think the more specific you can be about what you want, the better off you're going to be. And not only that, but your your goals are going to change. So as you have failures and successes, you're going to realize that, you know, what you thought you wanted in the beginning is not really what you wanted. And I think that came as a revelation to me. You know, I had this kind of idealized notion of exactly what I wanted. And then as I actually encountered it firsthand, I realized, no, that's not what I want at all. I mean, this interaction, this person, this experience is not, not what I wanted. And then so you kind of revise and sculpt your goals in light of new experiences and interactions you have so that would probably be the second thing is just perseverance i think the third thing would be find a mentor so find someone that's better than you and that knows more uh-huh. than you that can show you the ropes and so that would be the third thing that i think really changed my success you know they don't have to be the best but if they can just get get you out to the club or social situations and you know you have somebody to to draw on their knowledge and experience, I think that can really elevate your game. You know, they don't have to be the best coach in the area, just somebody that's willing to go out and, you know, you know, discuss these issues with you because you learn a lot just from people that have done these things. Yeah, also. yeah that's, a, that's a great point. And, you know, obviously that mentor should be having better results than you. You know, you should be able to uh, see those results. Yeah, mentor is key. In every part of your life, it's so invaluable. So you made some great points there. Thank you very much, Nathan. And thank you for this great session. Ton, tons of little scientific literature. We're going to put loads of those references. We referred to quite a few bits. And I'll even try and get some of those studies you referred to and put them in the show notes as well. So thank you very much. Sure, great. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. I hope, uh, hope it was helpful to your listeners. I definitely enjoyed it. <laughs> That was a pretty full-on episode. So if you want to get the transcript and you prefer to read through it a bit more slowly, or if you want to get to links to anything we mentioned on the show, as usual, you can get those at datingskillsreview.com slash 
DSP48. It's coming up to Christmas. It's time to relax. It's time to have fun. Make sure that you're having a lot of fun. And also think what you're going to start doing for yourself next year in this area of your life, you know, dating, sex and relationships. How are you going to change your life for the better? A lot can happen in a year. I've seen huge progresses. So don't set your limits and your goals too low when you're thinking about like, what am I going to do next year? If you have any thoughts or ideas and things you're not sure about and your goals for next year, you can put them in the comments on this week's episode and I'll be happy to reply and give you my personal thoughts and ideas on what you're doing and what you're planning and how you may be able to improve that plan and improve some of those ideas. Again, have a great Christmas, guys, and look forward to talking to you again in the new year. Take control of your dating life today. Take one idea or one insight from today's episode and apply it today. Don't wait. Do it today. That's all it takes to change your life, step by step, episode by episode. Learn more about what I, Angel Donovan, and my team do at DatingSkillsReview.com. How we help men like you take control of their dating lives.